This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Reading from chapter 21. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and leased it to tenants. He went to another country. When the season of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants, and he will give him the fruits in the seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. I invite you to please be seated. And at this time, I'd like to invite Reverend John Holland to come forward. Um, John and his wife, Jenny, are here with us today. what a blessing and a pleasure it is to have both of them. Uh, John is just up the road at Tomasi. He's the CEO of Tomasi DAR School. And we're going to hear a little bit about that just in the introduction to your sermon today. But uh, it's a joy to, to have you with us. And if I may, may I just pray with yeah, you? Yeah, please. So we just pray, come Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we pray a fresh anointing fall upon John. Feeling fresh, Lord, from the top of his head to the bottom of his toes, Lord, that the word that you've given him, that we have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say through him, Lord. So bless him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you, T. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for a very warm welcome. Um, it is a joy to be with you. There is no Anglican parish in Oconee County outside of our living room. Uh, And so it is um, really wonderful for Jenny and me to be here this morning and to worship with, I'm never good at numbers, but two or three hundred, worshiping Anglicans, crying out the Lord's praise. It's really a wonderful thing. Um, Since T prayed, we're going to count that as good and we're just going to jump right in. And I want you to imagine with me uh, a little girl about four or five years old who gets locked in her closet. Maybe it's an older sibling that thinks that's a funny prank to play. Maybe it happens by accident. But she gets locked in her closet and she tries the doorknob and realizes what's happened. And the terror begins to rise in her heart. She bangs on the door. She starts to scream and to call. It feels like the darkness is closing in on her. She's absolutely terrified. What does that little girl need? This is easy. 
she needs somebody to open the door, right? Because on the inside of the closet, it feels like her world has ended. But outside of it, the world's just fine. She needs her mother, her father, some caring. She needs somebody to open the door for her and wrap her up in a big embrace and dry her tears and tell her everything is okay and that she's loved and that she's safe now. And once the light shines in, then all the dark in the closet doesn't seem quite so bad. For 105 years, that is what Tomasi DAR School has been about. Because life traps children in dark closets that they didn't mean to get into. Poverty, lack of education, family dysfunction, drug addiction, domestic violence. Life locks children into dark closets and they desperately need someone who will come and simply open the door and wrap them up in loving arms and say, baby, everything is going to be okay. That's what we're about. That's our mission. Today, we do that through a sober living community called Starlight because our campus is lined with Starlight light poles. It's a multi-year community for mothers and children who've experienced substance use, domestic violence, poverty, um, other forms of family dysfunction and brokenness where they can come and heal. Recovery, counseling, parenting skills, life skills, spiritual growth. That program is all about welcoming mothers and children for whom life locked them in a dark closet and saying, no, 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 the Lord Jesus wants to open the door for you and let you step back into the fullness of life. We support that program with a variety of educational programs. We have an early learning center, an after-school and summer day program, um, an elementary academy that serves the kids in our community. Last year, we served 122 children across all of our programs and services. But every single one of them is about that simple thing. We want to open those closet doors and invite children to step out and find life again. Uh, if you are a person who's lived in recovery, you've got uh, some good years under your belt of walking in freedom from addiction, we would love to invite you to come out to our campus and share your story with our moms. One of the most important things that folks in early recovery need is to hear the stories of people who've made it and to be inspired and encouraged by that. Um, if you'd like to talk more about our work, what we're doing, you can certainly catch to near me after the service. We'd love to tell you about it. And if it pricks your heart because you've known the tragedy of addiction in your family, um, and you'd like to explore getting more involved with us, you can come to our fundraising gala. It's next Thursday night, and guess who the, the keynote speaker is? It's Thad Barnum. So we'd love to have you come. You can chat with us um, after the service. The other reason I love that vignette uh, is because it does for uh, our agency what I think parables do in the scriptures, in the prophetic literature, and when Jesus tells them in the gospels. It's a little story that you can remember that unlocks a great big world of meaning for what the prophets are wanting to communicate. Let's start with this passage in Isaiah. It's a love song. That's how it opens. I will sing to my beloved a song to my lover about his vineyard. It's the heart of God for his marriage partner Israel. He is looking for someone to recreate Eden with him in the middle of a fallen, broken, violent world. He wants to bring heaven to earth. So he cultivates Israel as a renewed Eden. And the passage echoes Genesis 1, 2, and 3. My love had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Eden was built 
on the top of the hill with four rivers flowing down. The people of Judah are a cultivated place, an orchard, a garden in which he took delight. What does Eden mean in Hebrew? It means delight. And what is God's dream for this vineyard that he's cultivated, for his bride, his love? He waited for it to produce edible grapes, but it produced sour ones instead. I think the ESV called it wild. The Hebrew is literally the word stinking. They're stinky grapes. He wanted good grapes, and he got sour ones. And then the song takes a turn. As God pronounces judgment upon his vineyard. And that echoes the uncreation of the primordial world and the exile from Eden. He says, I will make it a wasteland. Tohu vavohu. Like the welter and waste before God said, let there be light. No one will pursue its vines or hoe its ground. And thorns and briars will go there. It's the same thing Yahweh said after he cursed the ground when Adam and Eve fell into sin. So what was God looking for? What was the good harvest? What were the good grapes that he wanted? Verse 7 is the key verse in the text. He waited for justice, but look what he got. Bloodshed. He waited for righteousness, but look what he got. Outcries. The word for justice in Hebrew is mishpat. It most normally in Hebrew means restorative justice. It's that justice that comes and puts broken things right, that brings order out of chaos, that brings beauty out of ugliness. It's God at work in his world to redeem and restore it and make it anew. And even when the word is used in retributive justice context, in other words, when discipline or judgment or punishment is in view, The long view is always towards restoration. That's the whole flow of the book of Isaiah. So much judgment pronounced in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah because of Israel's sin and failure. And so much hope for restoration pronounced from chapters 40 to 66. God wanted justice. He wanted a society He wanted a people. He wanted a nation where brokenness is restored, where woundedness is healed, where the world is set right. And he wanted it as a witness to the nations that the rest of the world would look upon his people and they would be a beacon of light in the dark closet, shining out, radiating the beauty of his way of governing humanity. He looked for justice and he looked for righteousness. Zedekah in Hebrew. It means to be in right relationship with everybody. The righteous person is the person in Hebrew who looks around at every single relationship in their life, from casual acquaintances to the most intimate people that they live with. And there's no conflict. There's no ought. There's no brokenness. There's no unforgiveness. There's nothing unresolved. The righteous woman, the righteous man, is the person who has right relationships. That's what God wants. Those are good grapes. That's a good harvest because from that you can make fine wine to rejoice and celebrate with. But what did God find? When he looked at his people, he found rotten grapes. There's even a footnote in your ESV pew Bibles that points this out, but it's a rhyme in the Hebrew poetry. He looked for mishpat, but he got mishpak. He looked for Zedekah, but he got Zakah. He looked for justice, but what did he get? Do you remember from the text? He got bloodshed. 
He looked for righteousness, but he heard outcries, bloodshed, a nation that tolerates violence, leaders that perpetuate it. He heard outcries from the oppressed calling out to Yahweh for deliverance from their oppression. That word outcry, zakah, is actually a key word in, in the Hebrew Bible. It shows up time and again, and I'll just give you two quick key examples. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, Yahweh comes down and he says to Abraham, I have to go and inspect Sodom and Gomorrah because I need to find out if the outcry that has risen up to me is really as bad as it seems. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities of injustice and oppression and violence. And God had to come and see, is it really as bad as it sounds so that I know how to judge? And in Exodus chapter 3, it's Yahweh who hears the outcries of his people Israel in slavery in Egypt, having suffered genocide of their little boys wailing mothers, screaming and crying for, a, for God to come and rescue them from a Pharaoh who would do such a thing. God wanted justice and righteousness. What he got in his people was bloodshed and outcries. God seeks a marriage partner to sing his song of love to cultivate his vineyard, to establish his justice and his righteousness on the earth as a witness and a testimony to the nations. From Eden to New Jerusalem, this is what God is after. This is his longing. This is his heart for his people. And yet nation after nation, civilization after civilization, community after community chooses the path of violence and oppression. And so God becomes human to sing his own song and to show us the path to goodness. And we pick up the story on Monday of Holy Week in Matthew chapter 21. Surely, I mean, it's, it's unmistakable that the song of Isaiah from chapter 5 is in Jesus' heart on this Monday, which culminates in the parable of the tenants. Jesus looking at the Israel of his own day and seeing the exact same things that the older prophet had seen hundreds of years before. Corrupt religious leaders colluding with oppressive political and military power. Israel failing in its vocation. The people of God absolutely failing to be a light to Rome, oppressive and occupying as Rome was, failing to be a light to Rome and to the nations beyond, that there is a better way to be human a better way to organize society than what Rome has to offer. And so Jesus pronounces judgment upon it. In his prophetic action in this chapter, he cleanses the temple. Like Jeremiah coming to the temple. He curses the fig tree. And then later in Matthew 24, he'll actually literally say, not one stone will be left on top of another in this place. And yet even in that, even as retributive justice is pronounced, the song of love is still on Jesus' lips. The hope of restoration is still there. He refers to the blind and the lame that he's healing here in chapter 21. He talks about the faith of tax collectors and prostitutes. 
you know, mob workers and sex workers. Who hear the gospel message and are rejoiced to hear it and respond in faith to Jesus and come into the kingdom while the religious reject and refuse. The love song being sung. The bride hearing the voice of her groom. What does Jesus want? Jesus wants a community of justice. How do we read the Sermon on the Mount and miss that? He wants a community of whole relationships. He wants Eden reborn. He wants good grapes. He wants fine wine, or to use his phrase, he wants the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so he gives this parable of the tenants. And you can't miss the echoes of Isaiah. A landowner, Israel's God, cultivates a vineyard complete with fence, watchtower, and brine press. All images from Isaiah's song. And he leases it to tenants. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the leaders of the people of Israel. And he leases it because he wants a good crop. He wants a nation of good grapes. And then he sends his slaves, the prophets, to collect the harvest of the good grapes. A society of restorative justice. And what do the tenants do? What do they do to the prophets? They seize them. They beat them, they kill them, and they stone them. The order's interesting because after you're dead, stoning just seems like insult to injury. There's one word for that. It's violence. And so what does the landowner do? He sends his son, Jesus. Clearly, I mean, you can't miss it, right? Jesus is predicting his death on Friday. His murder at the hands of corrupt power. And the key verse in the parable is verse 38, where the tenants say, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and get his inheritance. Corrupt religious leaders colluding with oppressive political and military power to murder the Son of God. Bloodshed and outcries. But what's the inheritance? What's the inheritance that the religious leaders think they're going to get from Jesus? It's the kingdom of God. Only their way, not his. Jesus' inheritance is Eden restored. It's the kingdom of God. It's a society of good grapes. It's the new Jerusalem. It's a community free of violence and full of right relationships. That's the inheritance. And the religious leaders think they can go and get it through violence. And Jesus, I ask you to lift up your eyes. Jesus has a different way to bring it. On my desk in my office, there's a uh, 12-inch action figure. I'm a superhero nerd. There's a 12-inch action figure of Captain America, because in the Marvel Universe, he's my favorite. Because he, he represents the best of what we're supposed to be as Americans, right? I, just, I love him. And yet, at the end of the day, when Cap meets a bully, what does he do? You take your shield, and you bash it. Just above that action figure of Captain America, there's a picture collage that I created of the Reverend Do Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who's one of my personal heroes. 
When Dr. King met oppression and violence and injustice in society, he didn't pick up a shield and bash it. What did he do? He embraced nonviolence. He embraced suffering love. He didn't believe that you punched the enemy in the mouth. He believed that you turned the other cheek to your enemy. And I know where he got that from. There is a divide right down the middle of my worldview when it comes to violence. And I don't think I'm alone in this problem. I think that divide runs right through the middle of the church in America. Is it Cap? Or is it King? Because the vocation of the people of God has always been to produce good grapes, to ferment good wine. And what does that look like? It looks like communities of justice and righteousness that serve as a prophetic witness to a world that is drunk on violence. And it is drunk on violence. Our children, our children huddle in dark closets, terrified of shooters walking down the hallways of their schools. Did you know that South Carolina, year after year, for decades now, has ranked in the top two or three for instances of domestic violence? There's violence all across this state every single day in homes. I heard this week on a podcast that there's a politician, a U.S. senator, who spends $5,000 a day did you hear me? $5,000 a day on private security for his children and grandchildren because the number of death threats that he gets, he gets against them because he has dared to stand up and speak truth to power. If you want to look outside of our country, when I wrote the sermon this week, Saturday hadn't happened, so I put Russia's war in Ukraine down. And by the way, I don't know if you've paid attention to the news or not, but the Russian Orthodox Church has sanctified Putin's war crimes. Corrupt religious power colluding with corrupt military and political power. And then yesterday happened. Hamas in a surprise attack on Israel. These are just a couple of examples so I can stick to the 25 minutes he asked me to preach. <laughs> We'd be here for days to recount the history of violence in our world. And if we were brave enough and humble enough to be honest about it, violence committed then and now with symbols of Jesus surrounding it. It's a story later in Matthew that symbolizes, I think, what the heart of this text is about. It's when they come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this, right? And what does Peter do? He draws his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave, and Jesus heals it. But what did Jesus say to him? I learned it in the King James. Those who live by the sword, what? Die by the sword. The temptation is to retreat into violence to bring the kingdom. 
We're afraid that it won't come, or it won't come when we want it to come, or we'll pay a price with our enemies for it not coming. And so we try to force people to do it our way. Fear is always, always, always at the root of violence. Beneath every bully is a coward. And the heart of fear is always a failure of faith. I don't trust God that through his people, he will execute justice in the world. So I've got to help him out and brandish the sword, literally or figuratively, and go make it happen. Fear is always a failure of faith. But brothers and sisters, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says that we have nothing to fear. Do you believe that? That the outcome is one. That the kingdom will come in its fullness. That new Jerusalem will reign. That peace and justice and wholeness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And if that is our future... If that is what Jesus has won for us and for his creation, then we have nothing to fear and never a reason to be violent, to make it come. Kingdom of God will come. It will not come through violence. One of the things I hope this sermon does is challenge worldviews in the room. But maybe you're sitting there thinking, I hadn't killed anybody. I've never hit my wife. Man, I haven't even, I don't even lose my temper on the road. But Jesus calls us, oh, he calls us to a higher righteousness, doesn't he? From the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said to an older generation, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subjected to judgment. Ouch. And whoever insults a brother or sister will be brought before the council. Mm. And whoever says fool will be sent to the valley of smoldering fire. So then if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and present your gift. You haven't murdered? Great. That's really good. But who have you insulted? Who do you call fool or other words that we use that are more colorful? And what about support? For angry politicians and cable news pundits and social media influencers whose entire game is to belittle and insult and mock their opponents in order to villainize and demonize them out of fear, the violence of words. What about broken relationships? Are you a righteous person? Can you look around you at all the people in your life and say, yeah, every relationship in my life is in order? Or is there unresolved offense? Is there unforgiveness? I grew up in a home that was characterized by domestic violence. All of my earliest memories until I was five years old, and I really do think almost all of them, involve abuse against my mother and my older brothers. So I don't say these things lightly. 
Because I've lived the experience of being powerless in the face of injustice. And I know the anger that gets sown into a little boy's heart when he can't protect the people that he loves. And I've spent my whole adult life sometimes cooperating, sometimes not, with the grace of Jesus to heal those wounds deep in me and not choose the way of violence in my words or, God help, in my actions. Jesus calls us to restorative justice, to a higher righteousness. He looks for the fine wine of a renewed Eden, and he looks for it first in his people. He wants to hear the echoes of his love song in his people. Because if we don't model it in our families, in our workplaces, in our churches, and in our communities, who will? And if we lose our prophetic voice and refuse to speak truth to power in this country and hold politicians and pundits and influencers to the most basic standards of civility and charity so that we can function as a society, much less actually love our enemies and do good to those who mistreat us and pray for God's blessings upon those who abuse us. If we don't do that, In this nation, who will? If we are not a light, then who will be? If we do not open that closet door, then who will? There is a better way. Because the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ towers over all the violence in all of human history. Every war, every genocide, every broken bone, every bruised face, every rape, every murder, every insult, every mockery, every lie, every curse, every wounded heart. Because the Lord Jesus went to his cross and in his outstretched arms he grabbed the whole history of human evil and sin. Did he not? And he brought it onto himself, and he suffered the full weight of its curse. He gave his face and his back to corrupt religious power and corrupt political power. And in the real instance of his torture, he suffered it. And in the spiritual realm, he suffered it all. And what did he do? He conquered it. Praise his name. Yes? And he rose victorious from the grave. And so his cross towers over this sanctuary. It towers over all of history to say to every single human being who will look to the beauty of that cross, there is a better way. Violence is never, ever the right answer. And even if you believe, even if you want to make a theological or philosophical argument that in really rare instances it really is necessary, Look at what that does to the men and women who go and fight. Our families in this nation are ravaged by PTSD from sending every generation of Americans for a hundred years to war. Jenny grew up in it. There is a better way. There is a better way. There is a love song being sung for us to join. 
In both passages, the Lord summons his people to self-evaluate. Isaiah 5.3, So now, residents of Jerusalem, people of Judah, you decide between me and my vineyard, or the words of Jesus in the parable. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Have you never read in the scriptures, this is from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes for this reason. I tell you, and this is a somber warning, brothers and sisters, and it happened in history. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will bear its fruit. If we choose the path of violence, we will die. We will die by violence, whether literally or figuratively. If we reject the cornerstone, we will be crushed by it. And the kingdom will be taken from us and given to other nations that will bear its fruit. But even when God's justice is retributed, it's always restorative. Because the song goes on. That very grave warning is overshadowed by the song of love. The melody of Adam and Eve strolls in the cool of the evening in the garden of Eden with Yahweh. The mighty chorus of the prophets. The sweet refrain of Jesus. And the thunderous climax of the cross and the resurrection. The love song of Yahweh goes on and on and on. It cannot be drowned out. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be conquered. And it will culminate in the renewal of the whole creation in a world of perfect justice and righteousness, of love songs and fine wine. The question is, will we join the song? Will we sing along with it? Even if it means we take up our cross and follow Jesus in the path of nonviolence, in the path of forgiveness and love, will we join the song and let love be the melody and the harmony of our lives, our churches, our communities, and yes, as a prophetic call to this nation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.